So they're all there. They all have their athletes. All the athletes are decked out in the highest tech gear for 1983. The men have those running shorts. You know the ones? They show way too much of a man's thigh. I don't want to see that. So they're all in their gear. They're all rigged. They're all ready. They got their support teams. All of them, except for one. He was dressed in rubber boots, rubber overalls, and a flannel shirt. And so the press saw him and they're like, hey, buddy, this is an ultra marathon. The goat roping's down the road, right? And the guy said, no, I'm here to run. And they're like, well, where's your team? He said, I don't have a team. And they said, you can't run without a team. He said, well, when I was on my dad's sheep farm, there was 2,000 acres, and I would have to run out sometimes two or three days to get all the sheep in. I never needed a team for that. And they said, well, your gear, it's all wrong. He said, I wore this same gear. They said, well, well, how old are you? He said, I'm 61 years old. They said, you're too old to run. And he said, one thing, watch me. And watch him, they did, because the next day, the gun goes off. The professional runners take off. They're gone, and they leave Cliff Young in the dust because he didn't actually run. He shuffled, just shuffled along. And now they're thinking, is this some kind of joke? Are we being punked here? Is Jolt Cola doing some kind of thing? What's going on? And he kept running. In 1983, all ultramarathoners knew this. If you wanted to win, what you did is you'd run 18 hours, sleep six hours, run 18 hours, sleep six hours until you were done. Well, that first day, 18 hours is up. All the pros go to bed. But the next morning, they woke up. And that great lead they had on Cliff Young had shrunk. Because guess what? Cliff Young ran all night long. So now the press is like, what's up with that? So they come up next to him. What are you doing? He goes, I'm running. When are you going to take a break? He said, when I'm done. (laughs) They said, you can't do that. You can't run five days straight. Guess what he said? Watch me. (laughs) And so all the pros would run 18 and they would sleep and run 18 and they would sleep. And each night their lead got a little bit less and a little bit less. And on that fifth night, Cliff, run, Cliff Young ran all night long, passed all the pros, won the race, and smashed the old record by nine hours. He didn't know there was a $10,000 prize, which in 1983, that's like in today, what, 10 million bucks, something like that? A lot of money. He felt so bad about these other guys that had tried so hard, he took the 10 grand, divided it up into five $2,000 chunks, and gave it to the other runners. Yeah. Stallion. Guess what every ultramarathoner knows today? You run straight through. And you don't actually run. Most ultramarathoners do what's called the Cliff Young Shuffle. Because what they found out is that is the most efficient way to move a human body forward. What a story, huh? Now, why do I love that story? Because he wins. It wouldn't be a great story if he did all that and he lost, right? So I want to talk about a different kind of hero. What happens when your hero loses? What happens then? So we're going to be diving into the gospel of Matthew for the next season or so. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, because you got to look at some important things here. Look at Matthew chapter 14 for a different kind of hero. 
Matthew 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath, And his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Father, I pray for wisdom. I pray for those in here that maybe feel a little bit like this story. I pray that we could have a better understanding of the kingdom and the reality that we live in. So speak, and may we listen. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I need to catch you up a little bit on the backstory here. You've got this guy named Herod the Tetrarch. Verse 9 tells us he's a king. In fact, he's the son of a king. So he's always had it going on. It also tells us that he had a birthday party. If you lived 2,000 years ago, you didn't have birthday parties. It's not like it is today. So this means he is wealthy. He's a partier. He enjoys himself, right? And then, even more interesting, verse 3 says this, that he had taken his brother Philip's wife. So you should be saying, huh? Here's the story. His dad, his name is Herod. He was called Herod the Great. He took that nickname for himself. Right? You know a guy has problems when he's like, what should I call myself? Herod the Average. Nah. Herod the Pretty Good. Herod the Great. That's it. So his dad has some issues. In fact, big issues. He kills one of his wives and a couple of his sons. So the dude's a slime bag. Well, he has, at the end of his life, he dies. There are four sons left. Each one of his four sons gets a part of his kingdom, right? But these guys, they ruled underneath Rome. So every once in a while, the little puppet kings had to go to Rome and be like, hey, Caesar, you're the best. So what happens is these four brothers, they travel to Rome together to go tell Caesar he's the best. As they travel, Herod Jr. falls in love with Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. They have an affair. He comes home, divorces his wife, who happens to be a Nabataean princess, 
Satan, what? The Nabate- have you ever seen Petra, the rock city? The Nabataeans made that. So he sends his princess, ship him back to her, ships her back to her, her house, to her dad. Her dad gets ticked, declares war on Herod Jr. Philip, his brother's ticked because he stole his wife. He declares war on uh, Herod Jr. So it's just this messy situation. John the Baptist calls him out on it. So Herod, what is he? Good guy, bad guy? Bad guy, slime bag. Then you have the other main guy is this guy named John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is Jesus Christ's crazy cousin. That always makes me happy, (laughs) right? Because every family has a crazy cousin. Even Jesus, God in the flesh, had a messed up family, a crazy cousin. If you're sitting there right now thinking, I don't have a crazy cousin in my family. (laughs) Yes, you do. It's you. All right? So they're everywhere. So he's... Jesus' crazy cousin, he dresses in camel skin. He has a zero-carbon footprint. He's a dumpster-diving hipster. He eats locust and honey, you know, just, he's an unbelievable guy. And he's a prophet that speaks with an, without a filter. He never learned the business kind of affirmation sandwich, you know that? Like, if you're ever going to correct somebody, first you find something nice to say about them. Then you correct them, and then you end with what? Something nice. The affirmation sandwich. Not John the Baptist. Okay, I'll give you an example. We met him in chapter 3 a couple of months ago. And in chapter 3, John the Baptist is doing his thing. These crowds are coming out. So all the big guns from Jerusalem travel down to see what John's doing. The celebrities. Now, what normally happens when a celebrity shows up? Everyone's like, hey, good to see you, right? Okay, in Israel, I was in Israel for three weeks. My trip happened to sync up with a guy named Francis Chan. You guys heard of Francis Chan? He's a big gun, right? Good guy, wrote great books, crazy love, all these good books, right? So Francis Chan's in the same hotel as us, at the same sites as us. So there's people in, in our group, guess what they're doing? Francis Chan, man, great to meet you all. You know, they're just, they're, that's what you do, right? I did not do that to him. You know what I thought about doing? I thought about going up to him and saying like, Jackie Chan, man, I love you, bro. Love your movies. You're almost as good as Bruce Lee. (laughs) I just left him alone. Most people don't leave people alone, right? You're just like, hey, what's up? Good to see you. So John the Baptist has these guys come out to him and that's what they're expecting. They're expecting John to be like, wow, good to see you. What does he do instead? Chapter three, he calls them the sons of Satan. Like an old camel gang or something, you sons of Satan. You brood of vipers who warns you about the wrath that's coming. So John just is unfiltered truth. He doesn't have that positive affirmation thing going. It's just, I'm going to tell you the truth, what I feel about you. I don't care how, what you think. I don't care to impress you, period. So that's John the Baptist. He's this Muhammad Ali, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, Billy Graham, all swirled together in a camel skin robe. Right? He still lives in Portland. I've seen him. He's there. (laughs) All right, so that's backstory. Chapter 14. John the Baptist is doing his thing in the Judean wilderness. He all of a sudden hears what the king has done. Right? He's taken another man, his brother's wife. And so John the Baptist says, You know what? This ain't happening. He hitchhikes out of the Judean wilderness, comes up to the fortress palace of 
Herod Jr., I'll just call him Jr. from now on, of Jr. marches in there and says, repent, you sinner. Now, why did he do that? Because that's what prophets do. There's another king in Israel's history who was starting messing around with another man's wife. And Nathan the prophet went right into King David's throne room and said, you're the man, you're sinning. That's what prophets do. They were, they were watchdogs of God's law. They called people out. So John the Baptist is simply doing what these guys are supposed to be doing, right? So I love verse four because it says this. John had been saying to him, guess what that means? He said it more than once. He just kept saying it. So I can just imagine in my mind, John the Baptist camped out in front of Herod's palace, rock for a pillow, grasshoppers and honey for breakfast, and just waiting. Herod comes out, sinner, adulterer, fornicator. And so finally, you ever had somebody do that to you? What do you want to do to him? Prison, right? If you could put him in prison, you would. Herod can. So he grabs John the Baptist and throws him into prison, right? So as our story progresses, if you look at Matthew 11, you have John the Baptist. He's sitting and rotting in prison. And what does he do? He sends two guys to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, remember me? Remember me? I'm your prophet. I'm in prison right now. And chapter 14 is coming. I'm in prison. I can do something about it. If you know Matthew 11, Jesus does not intervene. Instead, Junior has this birthday party where his 12-year-old niece slash stepdaughter, which is very weird, Sounds like Arrested Development or something. Niece slash stepdaughter asks for his head, and she gets it. That's our story. And people say the Bible is boring. They need to simply read it, all right? So now that we're caught up, here's what I want. I'm going to give you a lesson from the winner and a lesson from the loser. First, the winner. Herod is the winner, right? If we're just keeping score, he's alive, he parties while John the Baptist perishes. But does anyone like Herod? Anyone have a kid named Herod? No, right? He's despicable. He's damnable. Three things to learn from him. Number one, his sin. He takes his brother Philip's wife for himself. Even the pagans would be like, dude, that's gross. Man, what are you doing? Right? The results of that sin is this. He has two wars. His family's all busted up. And what history tells us is this. He had to actually stay in his palace fortress from this point on because he was always worried about somebody killing him. So he's just captive in his own palace. The Bible says this about sin. It's Numbers 32, 23. It says, be sure your sins will find you out. There is a built-in consequence to sin and Junior right here is reaping the rewards. Bummer. Two wars, busted family, captive in his own home. Number two, he is confronted with his sin, but he does not repent of his sin. Please know this about sin. Sin, unrepentant sin, is always greedy. It has an appetite that's unsatiable. It always demands more and more and more. So Junior, he's got some kind of an issue. 
It manifests when he has an affair and takes his brother Philip's wife, right? But does it stop there? No. His 12-year-old stepdaughter slash niece comes in, dances in front of him, entices him, and what's his reaction? Ooh, baby, I will give you anything. Woo! Please know this about sin especially sexual sin. It has an unsatiable appetite. I have stopped counting the number of times I've sat in an office and listened to a man, some young, some old, tell me that I can't believe what I've done. That's not who I am. I never imagined I would do something like this. Listen to me carefully. Sexual sin always goes darker. King David, a good guy, Sexual sin made him what? A murderer. A murderer. King David. Herod starts out with some kind of little issue, goes deeper and deeper and deeper, steals his brother's wife, is enticed by a 12-year-old niece, and kills John the Baptist. If you're dabbling in sexual sin, stop. It will take you dark and dark and darker, and you'll do things you never imagined what do I do? You repent and you get help. We have a group of people, men that are meeting at Edgewater. They would love to help you because they know the reality of this. They know it. Get help. Lesson number two. Lesson three from the quote unquote winner. He's imprisoned. Did you notice that? If you read through this story, you're supposed to catch something that, that the least free person in our text, it's not John the Baptist. It's Junior, right? Verse three, he puts John the Baptist in prison. Why? Read it. For Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Herodias is saying to Herod Jr., put him in prison, put him in prison. And finally, Herod Jr. obeys. He wants to kill John the Baptist at first, doesn't kill John the Baptist. Why? Verse five, he feared the people. They thought he was a prophet. He can't do what he wants to do to John because he's afraid of people. Mark tells us that Herod Jr. begins to visit John the Baptist, actually begins to like John the Baptist, doesn't want to kill him, but he does kill him in verse 9. Why? Because of his guests. Right? Have you noticed that? He's the least free person. He ends up being a puppet who was pushed around by the opinions of other people. And the last word we get on Herod Jr. is this. He was sorry. Verse 9. You want a sorry life? Live like Herod. Live like Jr. here. He's a pawn in the game where he's supposed to be the king. He's the pawn, just moved around like anyone wants. Here's our lesson from that. The book of Proverbs, chapter 31, 1 through 9, that little text, it says this how to live like a king, how you live like a king. And in that text, it says this, kings don't play with gals, don't get drunk and stick up for the underdog. Here's what that little text is saying. It's saying to kings, you want to be a king? Then act like one. Don't play around with the gals, don't get drunk and stick up for the underdog. I like that. It's, it's a king saying, or a queen saying, 
I'm drawing lines in the sand before I ever get to that decision so I don't have to sit there and make it then. Do you understand that? It's I'm going to know what I do before I ever get into that situation so I don't have to bite my fingers and wonder, huh, like Herod, should I kill him or not? I don't know. You know, I really don't want to, but no, I'm not a murderer. I don't do that. If you want to live like a king, you have to make the decisions now in your life. Draw the lines in the sand about what you do and not do way before you're at the party. You can't wait and be like, well, should I smoke pot or not? You know, all these other people are smoking pot. They might think I'm cool if I smoke pot. Now, you should have made that line a long time ago. Well, should I sleep with my boyfriend? You know, everyone else is sleeping with their boyfriend. Should I sleep with my boyfriend? I don't know if I should. You, know, you need to make that decision a long time ago. Because in the moment, you'll crumble. In the moment, you're jello. Proverbs 31 is saying, if you want to be a king, you have made those decisions way, way before. You've drawn the lines in the sand and you're saying no. That's how you become a marble pillar, not a pile of jello. Real simple lesson from Herod. He was twisted and a puppet and a pawn because he never made those calls. And he ends up a murderer and a despicable man. That's our lessons from the winner. Let's get a lesson from the loser, John the Baptist. And I want you to feel something with him for a second. Because I think if you've been alive for any amount of time, you've dealt with this. John the Baptist gives us a lesson that I think every believer will go through. Maybe as a parent, you said, I did everything right for my kids. I sent them to private school, had them in youth group, took them to church every single day, and now they're addicted to pain pills. God, what happened? Jesus, what happened? Or perhaps your marriage. And I prayed for my marriage. I served him. I served her. I did everything I thought I was supposed to. God, in my marriage is crumbling. God, I tithe. I've given 10% since I was 18 years old. Now I can't pay my bills. Jesus, where are your promises? Jesus, at school, I've been nice and kind and considerate. I've never taken sides. I don't gossip about anybody. And now I'm being teased and bullied. I got no friends. Jesus, where are your promises? Where are your promises? Feels like I'm doing everything for you and I'm getting nothing in return. Okay, so let me retell the story of John the Baptist. He's a man that displays obedience to God on a level I think few do. John, I want you to be a homeless prophet. Okay, God. I want you to wear camel skin. You ever felt a camel? It's like, it's like rubbing a straw bale. Imagine clothes made of that. I want you to wear camel skin. Okay. I want you to eat grasshoppers. Oh, really? You can dip them in honey. Yes! Ma, oh, got one. Right? I mean, uh, absolutely truthful. I want you to tell people the truth even when it hurts. What's John the Baptist's reward? Trophy wife? Three pretty nice kids? Four camel garage? Olympic-sized swimming pool for the baptisms, of course. You know, that's what I do. I'm John the Baptist. I got to baptize. I need a big pool. No, what's his reward? What's his reward? At Herod Jr.'s birthday party, his niece asks for his head. And one minute later, 
The prison door is jerked open. He's pulled out, drug up in front of him, while Herod's still eyeing this little 12-year-old belly dancer, his head's cut off and put on a platter. Can you feel the weight of that? That's disappointment with God. What? Really? If you dig a little bit and you read chapter 11, here's what happens in chapter 11. John the Baptist is put in prison and he knows chapter 14 is coming. He knows it. So he grabs two of his disciples and says, go talk to Jesus and ask if he's the one or if we should look for somebody else because this just ain't right. After all I've done for Jesus, this is my reward? This just doesn't seem right. Do we need to look for somebody else? He's disappointed. He knows it's happening. He knows this is coming. That's wait. And if you read chapter 11, here's what you find. John the Baptist is doing something I think all of us do at some level. John the Baptist, he's not really trusting Jesus. He's trusting the little movie that we all have playing in our heads. And this little movie is this. If I do these things right, if I act out the script right and I, and I obey God and I do this stuff, then God's gonna give me a trophy wife, three pretty nice kids, big camel garage, and a little big size swimming pool. We all have that. At some level, we all have it. So in that moment, are we trusting God or are we trusting the script we think Jesus is supposed to do for us? Most of us are like John the Baptist. We really want Jesus to act out our script. We really want Jesus to follow our movie. We don't ultimately really want to follow his script. We don't trust in him. And, and when we don't, it is a recipe for disappointment in him because Jesus writes his own script. Do you trust Jesus or are you trusting the little script you have for Jesus? If you trust Jesus, here's what you will feel. You will feel terrified and excited. That mixture, just terror, like, what if I end up like John the Baptist? But excitement, because he'll write something better than you or I could ever imagine. And it's the only way to have shalom. If it's your script, man, you don't know. You know what's going to happen. We live in a very, very interesting time in life. I was in Israel, the two, we got a, a warning in Israel the, the day we left, don't go into the old city, something's happening here. Three days later, later, it happened in Tel Aviv. Two guys opened fire inside of a little mall there. Last night in Florida, you just don't know. You, the only way you can have shalom is if you trust Jesus and say, all right, I'm going to stop my movie, and I'm going to trust yours. It's the only way you will ever have shalom. Well, why should I trust Jesus? Because the Bible says this, Jesus says this. It's John 15, 13. He says, no greater love has a man than he laid down his life for a friend. Jesus loves you so much he laid down his life for you. John the Baptist had his head cut off, which was actually a merciful way to kill somebody because it's instantaneous. Jesus bled out on a cross hour after hour after hour, a grueling brutal death because Jesus says, I don't want to live 70 with you. I want to live eternity with you. I love you that much. That's why we trust him. That's why. And here's the fruit of that. 
The fruit of actually trusting Jesus, not your script for Jesus, the fruit of it is this. You are truly set free. You don't become a Herod, you become a king or a queen. Here's what I mean. If Jesus is my king, then guess what? I can tell the truth at my job because my career is not my king, Jesus is. If Jesus is your king, you can say to your boyfriend, no, because he is not your king, Jesus is your king. If Jesus is my king, I can tell the truth in front of you guys because having a big church is not my king. Jesus is my king. It sets me free. It allows me to become a pillar. It allows me to become a king. It allows you gals to become queens of your high king, Jesus. There is no other way. If it's your script, you'll always be worried. You'll have no shalom. And you'll be trapped as a pawn rather than becoming the king or queen that God has for you. That's why it matters. Lesson from Herod, look out, repent of your sins because they'll just get darker. It's greedy. You'll be captured by them. Lesson from the loser, trust Jesus. It's really that simple. And so I'm done and I have two offers for you. Number one, I think there are people that came here today that feel a lot like John the Baptist in chapter 11. What's up? What's up? I did everything right. This is my reward? What's up? Jesus says this about John the Baptist in that time. He says this, he is the greatest prophet ever. Jesus wasn't mad at John the Baptist, wasn't down on John the Baptist, didn't say, come on, bro. Man, remember, when you were in your mom's belly, you were born to your mom when she was 153 years old. Come on, you're doubting me? He didn't say any of that. He said, he's the greatest prophet ever. Jesus isn't down on that. He's saying, come to me. Trust me. I'll write a better story for you. It'll excite you and it'll terrify you in the same moment. So maybe you've come here with disappointment with God. I've been in that state. I think you need to be prayed for. So over here, we'll have some elders, some deacons, some Titus II ladies. They'd just love to pray for you. Pray that you and I learn to trust the unscripted Jesus because it'll be brilliant. I think there's some other people here that maybe like Junior, you've been dabbling. Maybe you're just starting it. You haven't stole your brother's wife yet. Praise God. Thank you for that. But you're just kind of dabbling in sin a little bit. And you're just not sure about the lordship and kingship of Jesus. Maybe today is your day where you get baptized. Because here's what baptism is. Baptism is, it's saying this, I'm on team Jesus. That's what it says. I'm identifying publicly that I am part of Jesus Christ's team. And I'm declaring it to people. But even more than that, I'm declaring it to powers. Because Ephesians 6.12 says this, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. You're declaring it to them. I'm team Jesus. And the Bible says this, when you go into these waters and you come back out, something happens. There's resurrection life in you. That the, the life that Jesus can give, because Jesus, the Bible says this, on the cross absorbed all the darkness, all the darkness of kingdoms, like Herod Jr., 
like ISIS, like Syria, like extremists. He absorbed all that darkness into himself so you and I could have life and be reconnected with our Father, and it's all a gift of his grace. So you can come and say, I'm on team Jesus. So I'm going to pray. Those that want prayer, come down right here. Those that want to be baptized, I'll meet you right here. If you're doing good, praise God. Go enjoy a burger. There's some jump houses. There's a lot of fun stuff to do. And so, Father, I thank you for the lessons that your word teaches us. I pray that at Edgewater, you'd be raising up kings and queens to serve in your high court. Because one day, we are going to rule and reign with you forever. That's our destiny. May we start acting like that today. May we learn Proverbs 31 to draw lines in the sand before we ever get to those situations. Knowing what we are and the power that gives us to act in like manner. I pray for those in here that like John the Baptist, maybe they're in a prison of sorts and they're feeling overwhelmed, disappointed. I pray that today they would trust you. Today we would trust you. I would trust you completely and wholly that your plan is a better plan than I could ever imagine. That you desire to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ask or even think for your glory and for your kingdom. May I trust in that. May I trust that it's not just about 70 years here, but about eternity ruling and reigning with you, my king. So set people free, Lord God, this day. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.